I feel like I've probably mentioned it before since I've been here. One of the churches that I interned at when I was in seminary had a pulpit that I swear to you was five or six, maybe even seven times the size of this one. It's this massive structure. Every time you stepped into it on a Sunday, it felt like you needed a CDL, a commercial driver's license, to be able to handle the thing. But as impressive and imposing as it was to look at, the story that was behind the structure was perhaps even more so. And that's because when the sanctuary of this church was originally built, one of the first things that that congregation did was sink the base of the pulpit down into the foundation. The pulpit didn't just sit up on a dais like this one does here, and making it the size of a Cadillac did not convey enough for these people, no. Instead, the mothers and the fathers of that church literally made the pulpit itself a foundational part of the building. Think for a moment. This would have been no simple gesture. They would have had to, when that sanctuary was built, they would have had to erect the pulpit first and then build everything else around it, the walls, the roof, the pews, the pool, the choir loft, even the floor itself. The pulpit was the biggest thing in the room. The pulpit was the central thing in the room. The pulpit for that church was the single most important thing in that room. It was a part of the foundation of that very room. When Rebecca and I were up in New York, we were part of a peer learning cohort with clergy from all around the city. I remember one time we were all together and we were discussing ministerial identity, who it is that we are, what it is that we do. And we were doing that by discussing the different labels for clergy that all of our different traditions would usually default to. Most of these titles will be familiar to you. Pastor, minister, Reverend, right reverend, most reverend, something that's never been applied to me. (laughs) Priest, apostle, father, on and on and on. We actually had a member of our group who was a female minister serving an Episcopal church who was still addressed as father. Father Kathleen Lyles because her congregation liked to keep things old school. Well, while we were talking, I offered up two titles that seemed to be pretty unique to our Baptist family. One was brother or sister, as it may be. And the other was preacher. I wonder if any of y'all have ever been in a Baptist church where the minister is addressed as 
preacher. I see some heads nodding. That was what it was like for me growing up in South Carolina. The minister that I grew up under had a Ph.D., but he was not Dr. Coates. He was ordained, but he was not Reverend Coates. No, from the day that he got there until the day that he left, he was Preacher Bill. Thus is the place and the power of preaching in Baptist life. It is foundational, like that pulpit in Gainesville, Georgia. It's definitional, like my pastor's title growing up in South Carolina. It is something that we are known for in other corners of the church. And while it is something that you and I should take pride in, we should also be aware that that kind of an emphasis on preaching can come with a downside. Because at a lot of Baptist churches, and not so much here because of our music ministry that we get to enjoy, but at a lot of them, If the preaching falls flat on a Sunday, then you can leave church feeling flat yourself. I have been at these churches. I have sat through these sermons. Y'all, I have preached some of these sermons, and everybody in this room knows it. And come lunchtime, it is easy to wonder whether or not you have actually worshipped on that day. Because again, what happens in the pulpit in a Baptist church is foundational to everything else, definitional to everything else. And if it falls short, then there is a good chance that everything else might feel like it has as well. I could go into why this is, why this focus on preaching and proclamation is embedded so deep into the DNA of this Baptist church and of every other Baptist church in the world. But do you remember what I said a few minutes ago about the constant threat of sermons sometimes falling flat? Well, a history lesson is one of the easiest ways to make sure that actually happens. Suffice it to say, though, That when the first generations of Baptist Christians tried to reimagine community for themselves, they looked to Scripture and what they found were brothers and sisters centering their lives around the Word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, as we heard a moment ago in Acts. Which is true. And yet, as we are here today, worshiping on World Communion Sunday, giving thanks that the Church of Christ is bigger than HAB and bigger than those of us who call ourselves Baptist, I also feel compelled to point out that here in Acts 2, right alongside the early church's devotion to the Word, we also see its love of the table. 
In fact, in the passage that we read just a moment ago, in Luke's thumbnail sketch of the earliest Christian's life together in the second chapter of Acts, we see it noted no less than twice in five verses. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And then again in verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts. If your ears aren't tuned quite right, it can be easy to miss. But the breaking of bread in these verses is shorthand for the Lord's Supper. We will hear them again in just a moment. Let us remember that on the night on which he was betrayed, our Lord took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. As it turns out, it doesn't matter where you are in the Gospels. These are the four things that Jesus always does with the bread. He takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples. But there's more. Just about a hundred years ago, a British theologian named Dom Gregory Dix was studying scripture. And he realized something. Dix realized that the early church had not just maintained this tradition in its stories of the Lord's Supper. But at the same time, they had also read this fourfold action back into other meals in Jesus' life. So, for example, in the story that we just read from Luke chapter 9, the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples say to Jesus, we have no food to feed them. Nothing but five loaves and two fish. And Luke goes on to tell us that Jesus looks to them and he says to bring it here. And he took the five loaves, he looked up to heaven, and he blessed them. And he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowds. This scene has almost nothing to do with the Lord's Supper on the face of it. It's daytime and not night. It's out in the wilderness, if you recall, not in Jerusalem. It's a crowd of 5,000 people, not the 12 disciples gathered with Jesus in the upper room. And yet every time this story and stories just like it get told in the Gospels, it is modeled on the Lord's Supper nonetheless. Jesus took and he blessed and he broke and he gave. Think how remarkable this actually is. The early church loved the Lord's Supper so much that they not only devoted themselves to it, as we've read in Acts, 
But as they reflected back over the life and the ministry of Jesus, they also read it into other meals in the Gospels, particularly those meals like this one, where Jesus presides, where he is the host, where he is the one feeding his beloved children around him, where he provides the meal where he shows all those who follow him how much he loves them and invites them here to love him and one another just the same. Because for the early church, brothers and sisters, this is what communion was. It was love. Growing up in Orangeburg, We would eat the Lord's Supper once a quarter. If you asked us why we did it, you would not get the same answer from every person. Some people would have said we did it because it was an ordinance. Jesus ordered us to do it. Jesus told us, do this in remembrance of me. Others certainly would have said, well, we do it because it's an important part of our faith. But if they were being honest, I feel confident in saying that a number of people at my home church would have confessed that they viewed the Lord's Supper actually as a nuisance, as something that whenever it was celebrated got in the way of the rest of the worship. Something, in other words, that we took four times a year whether we actually needed it or not. So if put on the spot, I'm not so sure just how many of us would have said that we did it because we loved it. It was tolerated. It might have been appreciated by some, but love. I feel confident in saying that it was certainly not something that we devoted ourselves to. And that's a shame. Because since day one, celebrating the Lord's Supper has been central to the life of the church. In it, we are bound to one another, to the person in front of you and behind you, to your left and to your right to the person who is worshiping down the road, and even to the person who is worshiping on the other side of the globe. We are bound in the Lord's Supper to all of those people whom we love, but whom we have lost, who have already gone over to the other side of Jordan and now enjoy their eternal reward. And we are bound to those whom we have not yet met, but whom we will come to love in the kingdom of our God. We are bound, in other words, to each and every Christian throughout time and around the world because in it we, just like them, are bound to our Lord. And there, brothers and sisters, is good news. One more quick thing and then I'm done. I think one of the reasons why Baptists sometimes shy away from falling in love with the Lord's Supper is because we have been taught to be skittish 
about what other brothers and sisters of ours in other traditions believe happens at the table. Ours, of course, is first and foremost a rational faith. We focus on the Word, on study, on absorbing Scripture. We make decisions. And it's only after we make decisions that we come forward and we commit. We gravitate more to arguments made in sermons and Bible studies than we do to mysteries that defy rationality. But brothers and sisters, in just a moment when you come to the table, let me invite you not to overthink it. Jesus has already promised to be here, here in the bread, here in the cup, here in the gathered community. And if he has promised to meet us here, at the end of the day, does it really ultimately matter how? So don't overthink it. Allow yourselves to fall in love with the gifts that are on offer. Devote yourselves like the earliest Christians to the breaking of bread. Partake of this meal as they did with glad and generous hearts. Come, brothers and sisters, to the table. Taste and see that our God is good. Thanks be to God. Amen.